All right, good, good, good. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We are in the midst, right in the middle of a series on the heroes of faith. Um, sorry, last week I was out because I, I had a fever, so I was just gone. I was in my bed. And But before that, we covered the first part of Jacob's life in his immaturity. And we talked about a number of things. I want to refresh our memory because today we're going to be doing the the last bit of Jacob's life right here. Literally, we're going to talk, the, the talk he gave before he died, right? That's what we're going to cover right here today. But I want us to um, remember this story because the whole idea of Hebrews 11 is the author of Hebrews is telling a story. He's telling a story about the history of mankind, right? He's telling the story about the history of mankind and how God has spoken to the forefathers of Israel, to the ancestors of Israel, and how God has been telling a story through their faith, right? And he's, and he's making the argument that we are now part of this same story, that if you can understand the faith and the heart of these ancient people who walked by faith, then you can become part of the story. And we mentioned a couple of weeks ago about how what we see throughout the, these biblical figures is that there's a picture forming of Jesus, right? We mentioned how Abel offered a more righteous, the story of Jesus, right? And was killed out of jealousy by his kin. And that is pretty much the story of Jesus, right? And Enoch walked with God and God took him, which is what happened to Jesus. And Noah built an ark to save a remnant of humanity from destruction, which is what Jesus is doing. Am I making sense? This is literally all glimpses, snapshots of the one who is to fulfill the entire story, so if you're in Hebrews 11, we're here now in verse 21. And it says this, It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. Okay, we're going to cover these two verses today. Um, we want to understand this story of faith. And right now we're focusing in on this person of Jacob. And two weeks ago we talked about how Jacob was an unlikely hero in the Bible, right? Because the dude was kind of, you don't want to be friends with Jacob, right? That guy would steal all your stuff. His, la- his name literally meant deceiver, right? The supplanter. The one who takes what's yours, right? That's, that's what, this is Jacob. And it was a prophetic name. It was true. That's what he did. He had a history of this. And yet what we found was that Jacob was greatly favored by God because even though he had these flaws, Jacob was a man of faith. Jacob believed in the blessing. And we talked about this thing called the seed blessing. I hope you wrote that down in your notes last week, right? The seed blessing. This is the blessing that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, right? Prophesied to the serpent, right? The seed of the woman would crush, right, the seed of the serpent, right? This idea of the seed blessing, and you see that blessing 
passed down through the generations all the way to Abraham. We talked about how Abraham had the, the seed blessing was given to him and then to his sons, and that's why it was a big deal. Why was it a big deal that Jacob wanted the blessing so much he was willing to steal and deceive for it, and yet God said, I like that. Not the stealing part, but the part that you really want it, right? And Esau, why was he rejected by God? Because he despised the blessing, his birthright. He despised the inheritance that was, that he, why? Because he didn't have faith. He didn't understand what the big deal was about. What's the big deal? Blessing, whatever. Just give me that stew, right? But Jacob honored this blessing, right? And what we're going to see is that right now, now Jacob is going to pass down the blessing to his son. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 49, Genesis 49, right at the end of the book of Genesis. And this is what this is Jacob. He is going to be blessing each of his sons. Okay, now I know that this is a little bit nerdy. You know, for us, it's difficult to keep in mind all these people, but you gotta understand the story, okay? You gotta understand. If you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand the history of these people. Okay? So I need to give you a little bit of, of background into Israel. Israel is a nation, but it's a people, it's a family first. It's literally Jacob's family. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and his 12 sons became the heads of 12 tribes that made up the people of Israel. Making sense? So right here, Jacob is going to bless his 12 sons, and he's going to proclaim their prophetic destiny over each of the tribes of Israel. Make sense? Now, we're only going to cover the first three tribes because I'm going to draw some principles for us to understand from these blessings. But you'll notice pretty quickly, some of these blessings you probably don't want. So if you're in Genesis 49 and you look at verse 1, says this, then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up onto your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it. Okay, wait, let's stop right there because I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So it starts off pretty good, right? Reuben, my firstborn, you excel in everything. And then what happens? Boom, curse. You will no longer excel. That's pretty jacked up, Dad. Some kind of blessing. Um, now, to understand why Jacob did this, it's because you need to understand the story of Reuben's life. What he did was he slept with his father's, um, I forget if it's his concubines or his wives. Um, and in Near Eastern culture, that's how you would proclaim that you're the head, you're the patriarch now, is you would sleep with the wives of the old patriarch. I know it's kind of weird. We don't really do that anymore. But that's how they did it. Right, so if you remember your biblical history, um, one of David's sons, right, Absalom, wanted to rebel against his father. He wanted to be the king. 
And so what did he do? He slept with David's wives. What he was doing, he was, he was saying, now I'm the boss. His wives, they're mine now. I'm the one in charge. That's how it works in Near Eastern culture. So Reuben, by doing this and by dishonoring and sinning against his father, that's why his father gave this judgment. And what happened? The, the inheritance we talked about two weeks ago always goes to the firstborn son, right? The inheritance by rights from Isaac, it should have gone to Esau, but Esau despised it and traded it away. Does that make sense? So it went to Jacob. In the same way, Reuben should have inherited the seed blessing from his father, but because of his sin in this regard, it was, he was passed by. Make sense? So then we should think, oh, it's good. It's going to go to the next one, right? Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their, their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. Oh, dang. They got jacked too. And again, it goes back to the same thing. Why, why a curse, Father? Well, because they did something really bad. Again, if you read through Genesis, um, it tells a little bit about their story. Simeon and Levi, who were next in line, they also lost the firstborn inheritance because they killed all the males in a city called Shem, right? It's like Shechem. Um, but there's a story about how they, they, they wanted to get um, revenge for the, the men of Shechem. Um, I believe they ravaged their sister or something like that. You know, they raped their sister. And so they killed all the males in that city. And so because of that sin, same thing. The blessing passes over Simeon and Levi. Make sense? Okay, now we get to the real blessing. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck and down like a lioness who dares to my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes, until, excuse me, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. All right, if you were paying attention a couple weeks ago, you just heard the formula. Right? You just heard the seed blessing formula. This idea of his hand will be on the necks of his enemies. He's going to have victory and triumph over his enemies. Right? His brothers will praise him. That's a play on words, by the way, because the name Judah means praise. Right? So Judah, your brothers will praise you is like a play on words. Make sense? But that's the idea. What happens? The seed blessing gets passed to Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. Interesting. Interesting. Now, why is this interesting? Well, if you know, you know, the story of how this works out, there's a lot to Israel's history that seems to fit this. This is a big deal. We need to understand this. Why? Because this is part of our story, which we'll talk about in a second. If you know your biblical history, what would happen is that the 12 tribes of Israel go down to Egypt and then you guys watch the Prince of Egypt, right? They become a great nation, but they get enslaved. Some say they built the pyramids and stuff like that. And then what happens? Moses comes along, delivers them 10 plagues. They come out of Egypt. They wander through the, the wilderness. And then they start and they conquer 
Palestine or Israel, this land, right, of Canaan. They conquer the land. They take inheritance. If you know the story, then there's the period of the judges where God raises up judges to lead them. After the judges, you have the first king, Saul, who's anointed over the kingdom. Then Saul, David, Solomon, and what happens after Solomon? The kingdom splits. Okay, why is this important? The kingdom splits. The ten northern tribes of Israel, these are all these guys minus Judah and Benjamin. They get conquered. They get scattered to the wind, and Judah remains. Why is this prophecy important? Because it plays out in history. In fact, history shows that this is exactly what happens. Judah becomes the dominant tribe in Israel, becomes the strongest tribe, so much so that when the kingdom splits, Judah becomes a nation to itself. And Israel is judged, and what happens? They're scattered to the winds. That's exactly what happens. Where's the, where's the tribe of Levi today? Opsa. No one knows. They're gone. Let me put you another way. Why do we call modern-day Israelites Jews? Because they're all descendants of the tribe of Judah. Okay? Judah was sent into exile in Babylon and then was brought back and reformed the nation of Israel as the tribe of Judah. Does this make sense? The destinies on Judah, what we see in the history of our planet is that this prophecy, it worked. It did exactly what it said. Or let me, put to you, let me put this another way. Is it just a coincidence? I find it amazing that people read this stuff and they're like, oh, cool, that's, that's neat. But God, are you really there? I always find that like, hello? Look at, look at what it says. This random shepherd... In Nowhereville, 4,000 years ago, got this idea. Judah, my son, you're going to bless and be fruitful, and your hands are going to be on the neck of your enemies. And then one of your descendants has the scepter, the rulership, and the, and the worship of the nations will be his. Is it a coincidence that you random Koreans worship a descendant of that one guy, Judah? Is that just a coincidence? It's just like, oh, it just kind of worked out like that. Right? Is it a coincidence that all these things in history magically line up with these prophecies? No. It's not a coincidence. It's biblical prophecy. And we have so much historical data that confirms all this biblical prophecy. I think that if we're going to make a compelling case that God is real, you have to know this stuff. Here's where all the evidence is. Somebody says, well, how do you know God is real? Um, he spoke to me and it made me feel good. Like, I like the personal testimony of that. But you have to understand there's a wealth of empirical data that's there to help people understand that God is real. Has it ever happened that a people has lost their national homeland, been scattered everywhere for 2,000 years, and then and yet... Christians were the one prophesying a hundred years before it happened that it was going to happen. Why? Because the Bible said it was going to happen, right? 
Christians were prophesying, no, the scriptures say that God will regather his children from around the world and re and replant them in the nation of Israel, and Jerusalem will be their eternal capital. Am I making sense? We have all this evidence that just happens to have played out. There's people in every nation of the world that worship the descendant of this guy because of the prophecy that was given right here. Am I making sense? This is kind of a big deal. We should be kind of impressed. You should be impressed with this. You should be like, dang, he was right on. That's like exactly what happened, right? If we understand all these biblical prophecies, it's exciting. There's so much to it, too, right? There's so many of these prophecies that if we're students of Scripture, man, it's, it's fun, actually. It's fun when you actually start to look at all the prophecies of the Bible and see how they're fulfilled. Now, let me take a step back and say something about fulfilled prophecy. Now, a lot of people mess up prophecy because they don't understand the, the Hebrew concept of prophecy. Prophetic fulfillment, I should say. In the Jewish understanding of fulfillment, fulfillment means to fill up to the full. So if you imagine like a jar, right, fulfillment means it gets filled a little bit, and then it gets filled a little bit more, and it gets filled up to the full. What am I talking about? Biblical prophecy often has partial fulfillment and then ultimate fulfillment. That's really important because what you're going to see is that many prophecies in Scripture get fulfilled throughout history partially, and then we have an ultimate fulfillment in the future, right? Why? What am I talking about? I'm saying that verse 10 here, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Question, has that prophecy been totally fulfilled at this point? No, it hasn't been. It's being fulfilled. We know that it's been partially fulfilled because y'all are here, right? If it hadn't partially been fulfilled, you guys wouldn't be here. It would only, only be Israelites talking about one's going to come from Judah. And yet now we have people in every nation of the world worshiping this descendant of Judah because this word is partially fulfilled. But what Scripture says is that it will one day be completely fulfilled. If you look at Revelations 5, 5 says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah. What do you think that's talking about, the lion of the tribe of Judah? It's literally referencing that prophecy that we just read in Genesis 49, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So this is a prophecy given at the very end saying when Jesus comes again, he's going to have the allegiance and the worship of all the nations. Making sense? Well, I hope it makes sense because you and I are now in the same place as all the people of Scripture. We talked about this two weeks ago. Are you Esau or are you Jacob? Are you the one who was set to inherit the blessing, but because of your lack of faith, because you didn't understand how great a privilege it was to be part of this great story, you despise your birthright, you, and you let it go, and you don't care about it. And what happens to you? Well, you get to join the line of Esau and Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Do you see there's a line growing here? Those who should have received this, 
who were called to this eternal destiny, but because of their lack of faith, they forfeited that which should have been theirs. Brothers and sisters, I say the same thing to you today. We are part of a story. We're part of this prophecy. That thing is prophesying about me. Jacob prophesied about me 4,000 years ago. And I'm like, yes, I'm part of this. And I'm glad to be part of this. Why? Because I'm part of a story that's just partially fulfilled. And I know that there's so much more coming. Amen? Amen. I want to ask one more question of us today. My question, well, let me put some background on this. What, we see, what we've seen here is that Abraham passed down a legacy to his children. Remember we talked about how Abraham probably gathered his son, right? He probably gathered Isaac and he said, Isaac, I am in part of a great destiny, Isaac. God spoke to me and gave me these promises. And now I'm passing this blessing down to you. Now you are part of the great destiny that God is doing in the world. And Isaac was probably like, whoa, dad. right? And then Isaac gathered his sons and said, sons, you're part of a great destiny. And it's been passed down and passed down. My question to you, what inheritance are you going to pass down to your children? And you're like, what are you talking about, dude? I'm in college, man. I ain't got no children. What I want to say is this, that if you see yourselves as part of the story, you now have the ability to get out of your 21st century American me-centered perspective of life. What am I talking about? I'm talking about your peers, all the people you know are living basically for one thing. They're living for, how can I feel a little bit better right now? Like, literally, that's the question of everybody's life. How can I make myself a little happier right now? And I want to say, that is, is, is so destructive to what it is that we were called to do. Why were, we were created. What the purpose that we have if you don't understand the perspective of Scripture, then you can't help but become as shallow and as purposelessness as everybody else. That's what Scripture talks about. You're not just merely of eternal destiny. What does that mean? No, you're called to live with an eternal calling, an eternal destiny. What does that mean? It means that you're to think generationally. So I ask you again, what are you passing down to your children? Understand, in our culture, we don't, we don't have young people think like that. We tell them, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've already said, I freaking hate that question. What do you want to be? <laughs> Let me put you another way. When you're thinking about who you want to date. What kind of qualities are you looking for? Uh-oh. Just got real right now. Just got real. Let me put it to you this way. In our culture, our culture has a stronghold of lust. It's a stronghold of lust. It's not kingdom-based love, which is the foundation for real kingdom families. What do I mean? How can you tell the difference between lust and love. Right, there's two major criteria. Ready? 
You should write this down. You can discern the difference in two ways. Number one, love is affection that wants to serve another, and it yields a long-term blessing. I don't know, there's a couple of you, but some of y'all like. Lust is the opposite. Lust is affection that seeks to exploit another person for personal short-term pleasure. Okay, this is important that you understand because you're going to see this dynamic in a lot of different ways. In dating, if, you're, if you have a kingdom mindset, then what are you thinking about? You're thinking about finding somebody that's going to help you fulfill your eternal calling and purpose. Right? But if you don't, if you don't feel like you have an eternal calling, what are you talking about, dude? Right? Well, then what are you looking for? You're just looking about somebody that's going to fulfill your short-term desires for sex, right? You might like the person because they, they look nice or they're rich. What? That, those are some terrible qualifications. What, what, am I, what, what am I saying? I'm saying this. How is that person going to be as the discipler of your children? Let me put you know how are they going to disciple your children well when they won't disciple anybody right now in their lives? No, I don't want to disciple anybody. I just live for me. Oh. I just crossed you off my list. You got to understand this. You got to understand this. Let me, let me put it to you another way. Do you know that one of the most important, fruitful, valuable things that you can do in your life is to have children? Like, I don't even want kids. Well, that's because you don't have an eternal perspective. <laughs> this whole idea that your children, you know, are there because they're, they're cute. They're like little toys that you get to play with. Come on. You're going to be disabused in the first day of having a child. Yeah, they're cute. That's why you don't kill them. You will understand. You have to understand our world has a totally jacked up value system, right? When people, when the, when people in the world, and I'm, I'm going to make, these are hyperbolic statements. So I understand we, don't, we all fall in the middle of these statements, right? But if we're talking about the worldly system of dating, it's just a system of exploitation. How can I use you for my personal pleasure until you stop giving me pleasure and then I'm going to dump you? See ya, right? That's a problem. Because why? It is, it's not service-oriented. It's not how can I serve you, right? It's how can I use you for my personal pleasure, and then it doesn't yield long-term blessing, right? Why is it that people are dating all over the place, and yet marriages are failing at an unprecedented rate? Why is it that nobody seemingly can have a happy marriage? Because our culture doesn't understand the difference between lust and love. It doesn't understand the difference, right? It doesn't understand 
that love is that which yields long-lasting fruit, and you have to learn how to do it. It's not easy. You don't just magically find somebody who's good at loving. You have to be forged into a person that is good at loving. And the, and the reality is that our world is full of shallow people. Can I be blunt? Our world is full of shallow people. Everybody wants to be a movie star. You know, none of those guys can stay married. I don't mean to, like, throw shade at the entire genre of people. But we understand there are some generalities here that are true, right? Why? Why is it that the most beautiful, rich, famous people in the world have no idea how to keep intimacy in their lives? I'll tell you why. Because for the most part, when you're rich in the things of the world, you become arrogant. And when you become arrogant, you never have those moments where you realize, oh my gosh, I have major problems that I need to fix. When you're arrogant, what you do is you constantly blame all the other people for why you can't have intimacy. Right? It's always, oh, that person wasn't this enough. Right? That person wasn't great enough. But if you're the one who's still single, who's the one who's got the problem? Hollywood? Let me say it to you. Look, if you're rich in the things of the world, it is harder for you to become mature. If you take pride, you're like, oh, you look in the mirror like, yeah, pretty good looking. Now hear me, that's not a, that's not a sin. Sometimes. <laughs> I'm just playing. It's not a sin. It's not a sin to be good looking. Praise Jesus. Okay. But it's stupid to be impressed with something that God's not impressed by. Does that make sense? Look, just being real. Just being real. If you're a good-looking, successful, skilled, rich person, the problem is you start to think those things are really valuable, really great. I love this about me. And the problem is people start to praise you for those things. Oh, man, you're so good-looking, right? Oh, you're so good at that, right? And you start thinking that your worth is tied to these things that you have. And what it does is it keeps you from having those moments where you go, oh, my God, I am so broken. Those are the moments you need to change. What's the point? Nobody starts off mature. Nobody. Nobody's mature at age 10. It's not possible. You are deeply flawed. And guess what? It's a blessing the sooner you come to this realization, right? It's a blessing. I'm so deeply flawed, God. You've got to change me. You've got to heal me. You've got to make me a person of substance. Why? Because only a person of substance can have intimacy. That's how this works. Because intimacy is a kingdom thing. It's a kingdom design. You were designed by God with a need for intimacy but you can't have intimacy with arrogance. Am I making sense? And yet, that's how the world functions. It functions in this world of lust. Brothers and sisters, I want to lovingly challenge us. We have to have a kingdom understanding. Why do you want to have children? So that you can bear fruit in eternity. I'm serious. 
You know what the most important day of your life is? Judgment day. You should have that marked on your calendar. That's the most important day of your life. For those who are in Christ, guess what? There's still a judgment. He, okay? Jesus pays for our, our death. He pays for it, but guess what? Our rewards, our assignment in the next life, our position, all of that is determined by works. Now the question is, are you going to go to God with the works of one lifetime? Don't do it. No, you want to go to God with the works of multitudes that you influenced. Am I making sense? Jesus did great, amazing works in three years, but I tell you that his rewards are determined by the influence that he's had on every generation afterwards. Am I making sense? In three years, Jesus lived in such a way to affect all of us, right? We're bearing fruit for Jesus in eternity, Right? Guess what? Your works are on the on Paul, the Apostle Paul's record to some degree. Am I making sense? Why? Because those that we influence, their works are added to our account in some way. Do you know, am I saying why are we talking generationally? Why are we talking about inheritance? Why do these things